0: Okay, heads. As... Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all your grace and mercy and patience with us every single day. And most of all, we thank you for saving us by grace through faith in your precious Son. Words can't express this, but we ask that you help us dwell on this every day of our lives. Help us to appreciate what you've done to the highest degree we can in this body and in this life, and help us take one day at a time, Father, so we can bring you glory in that way, always praising you and being grateful. Father, we ask that you bless this message, have your Holy Spirit guide us and teach us. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared, part 62. So on Sunday, the Spirit started with the importance of Pastor's recent blog and understanding the lies about man being good on his own. And, you know, this really is one of the most subtle and, and uh, devious of lies that is perpetuated throughout the human race, throughout the world, and throughout religions. So Satan's done a great job at planting this seed that has grown a lot of weeds, you know, in our good plants, so to speak. So we talked about on Sunday this deception that is resident in the heart of man, uh, even in believers, that man can somehow satisfy or please God on his own. And again, this is a very subtle thing. I hope I hope none of you are saying I never do that or I would never do that because this is a very subtle thing that um, I'll find myself doing sometimes, but I don't realize I'm actually doing that or thinking that way until somehow something brings it to my awareness. So, you know, again, that's why we be on guard for our hearts and always examine ourselves because these things creep in, these lies, these religious themes creep in to try to, take away our peace, and to uh, prevent us from giving God all the credit and all the glory. So the fact that man is somehow good on his own, or that that man's goodness can outweigh the bad, these are all um, deceptions that sound really good to the flesh. But this is not how God sees things. Again, that's why we're here tonight. That's why hopefully you hear every this class because we're trying to learn how God sees things, and it's usually the opposite of the way we see things. If we're honest and if we dive into the Word in in honesty and, and sincerity, it's not how God sees things. Isn't that what really matters, how our God and Creator sees things? Of course it is. It doesn't even matter if we disagree or we don't understand something. In the end, what matters is what the Lord says is true. So if you're willing to take that, sometimes, you know, it's like a punch to the gut on some topics. But if you want the truth, wonderful. You're going to get it in the Word. And God's Word says if you introduce anything bad or sinful, it stains or perverts good entirely so just think about that this is God's perspective now man's perspective is you know if I'm good nine out of ten times I'm good right I mean even as believers that's what our flesh that's how we kind of live and act and you know wrongly but we sometimes do that God's word says if you introduce anything bad or sinful into something divinely good it's perverted It's gone. It's no longer good. True goodness means 100% good and 100% pure. In God's eyes, something is no longer good once it has been unpurified. You remember the analogy sometimes that comes up where if you have a a gallon of pure spring water, let's say, as pure as we can get it, let's just say it's 100% pure water, okay? And you put one little droplet of a poison in there, or of anything, vinegar, whatever. It's no longer 100% pure. And that's that's how God looks at goodness. Goodness means it's totally, purely good. So how can man fit in that category, even the best of us? Think of Adam in the garden. One sin made him stained and impure in the sight of God. One sin. Sin that some people think it wasn't even that bad. You know, it's not like murder or things like that, right? He just, you know, ate a piece of fruit he wasn't supposed to. Impure, no longer good. Had to be kicked out of the garden for it to have a future salvation plan. So this is why Holy Scripture tells us if we've broken one part of the law, we've broken the whole thing. I mean, for any man to uh, hear that and to still think he's good, he's really living in arrogant deception, right? Uh, turn in your Bibles to James 2.10. James 2.10. Again, Holy Scripture tells us if we've broken one part of the law, we've broken the whole thing. And if we've broken the whole thing, how can, you say, how can anyone say they're good? We don't like that perspective, though. We like the 9 out of 10 perspective. But that's God's perspective. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. (laughs) I said this to a lady once. I was trying to witness to. She got all up in arms and emotional. She's like, that's not fair. (laughs) How can that be? That's not fair. I'm a good person. Oh, my God. So how do you, you know, you, you plant seeds and sometimes you're going to walk away or you, you just pray for them, but <laughs> it was like a violent reaction. But this is what God says. Do you want God's perspective and truth on the matter or, or do you want to live, you know, live in a lie, live in what makes you comfortable? And it's not true. Again, look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Our opinion doesn't matter. That's what God says. So now, how's your goodness doing? How are you going to keep up or, you know, fix the scales? So that's how we have to start thinking about man and why no man is good on his own. And this is why the only way man could be saved is if a perfect Savior paid his debt. A truly good person to take the place of the non-good all of us. So here are a couple excerpts from the blog on Saturday on the board again. The title was, Oh, Deep Down They Are a Good Person. Really? The world and its father, the devil, who is the father of lies, John 8:44), 44, wants mankind to believe himself inherently good. So there's like the root uh, that Satan tries to plant, the seed that he tries to plant believe himself inherently good, only plagued by the external pressures of disease, able to deliver himself by himself and for himself. You know, I can figure this out. I can get out of this. I can fix myself kind of attitude. If man believes this, he no longer has a need for the Savior. What a tragedy. And it goes on to say how convenient it is to Satan's ploy to simply lie about man's inherent condition. How accommodating this lie is to the human flesh, the very entity that despises the Spirit of Christ. Your flesh wants to say, I don't need Christ. I'm good enough on my own. There's at least a couple things here in this, you know, with the, how this appeals to the flesh. Number one, I can do this on my own. Number two, I don't have to submit to anybody. I don't have to answer to anybody if I can do this on my own. The flesh loves this accommodating lie so that we can get out of truth, get out of the accountability to truth even. So be on guard for your hearts. Even believers are tainted by this lie, whether because of the world's brainwashing or because of the remnants of past religion. If we're honest, we've all given people in our lives a pass at times with the excuse that they're usually a good person. And it's just like a false statement to fall into that trap. If they're an unbeliever, they remain trapped in sin and are simply not good in God's eyes. And that's what matters God's perspective. They are not good in God's eyes. Someone might be trying to be good, but they're failing. Whether they know it or not, they're failing because they're always falling short of the glory of God. We all ultimately fail at that task. So why is that? What's the problem? There's a root problem, and that is the fact that we're all born with a sinful flesh. We're born with a sinful flesh. This is part of the gospel that people need to see their hopelessness if they're going to accept Christ or or humbly realize they even need a Savior. We're born with a sinful flesh. And how can a bad tree produce good fruit? That's what we have. We're born with a bad tree. We're born with a sick tree. I mean, picture it. If the roots of a tree are diseased and rotten, if you could look under the ground or, you know, you dig up a tree and you check it out, right? And you can see, you, can, you just know it's bad, it's rotten. Do you expect to get any good fruit out of that? Right, right, DJ? Of course not. But see, we don't see the roots, right? The roots are underground. Like we hide, try to hide our flesh, deny our flesh. But it's rotten. So there's the root of the problem. On the board, Paul said in Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Notice the willing willing is present in me. I want to do good. Your neighbor will say, I want to do the right thing, but I keep, you know, screwing up. So it's fine if the willing is present in you. If you can't do it, you can't do it and you're behind the eight ball. The doing of the good is not there. And again, it has to be perfect good. Uh, when I came across this verse uh, going over Sunday's lesson, um, I thought of what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Uh, go to Mark 10, 18. Mark 10, 18. So again, Paul said in Romans 7:18, I know that nothing good dwells in me there's a perspective and in mark ten eighteen, Jesus said to the rich young ruler why do you call me good no one is good except God alone no one is good except God alone Now, besides the fact that Jesus was testing this man to see if he realized he was more than a man, that he was God in the flesh, besides that, Jesus was also making a flat statement here that only God is truly good. There's no room for misinterpretation there. There's no exceptions, right? Look again what he says. No one is good except God alone. So the implication, of course, is that man is not good. What we have to understand is the principle from the blog. Because if Satan can just plant a bad seed in our hearts, even as believers, and we, and we let that lie grow and fester, um, it's going to get diseased. We're going to have disease in our heart, and even in misleading people. So again, on the board... How convenient it is to Satan's ploy to simply lie about man's inherent condition. How accommodating this lie is to the human flesh, the very entity that despises the Spirit of Christ. As was the main emphasis on Sunday, what we have to realize is why Satan wants us to believe this particular lie. Why does he want us to believe this lie about man being good? Very simply, right? Came came back to the gospel. If he can just get man to think he doesn't really need a savior, that he's good enough to save himself, then that thwarts the gospel. You know, it's like putting the brakes on, on a train. Why do we even need the gospel? And that might even slow our desire down to spread it, as though some people don't really need it. I know I've done this when I think in the past to certain people in my life that, oh, they're probably a believer. You know, they're a good person kind of stuff. I'm hoping they're a believer. So my urgency waned with them, you know. My urgency to make sure they understood their sinfulness and that they needed a Savior and all that. Kind of just, you know, for whatever stupid reason. It was probably a lie I was buying. So on the board... This lie, good on our own, this came out on Sunday too. Like everything we encounter in this world, this is about the gospel. Satan attacks the gospel from a million different angles. He's like, how can I discredit it? How can I make people forget about it? How can I make people think they don't need it? Uh, Whatever different angle he wants to come at it from, he'll do it. And he knows our weaknesses too, don't forget. So he might use a different angle with you than with me just to get us to discredit the gospel and not give it the power that it that it truly holds. As Pastor mentioned on Sunday, Satan could care less if we go to college or not, or have a good job, or or how many kids we have, and all that kind of stuff. Unless those details take you away from the gospel being alive in your life, then Satan and the kingdom of darkness, you know, that's not their main objective to ruin your little life on earth their main objective is the gospel he has a pure hatred for the gospel I mean think about Satan right? Lucifer son of the morning the highest most beautiful perfect angel in wisdom and beauty fallen and now he sees God giving us scrubs salvation by grace through faith he hates the gospel so anything He can do to, 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 again, thwart it and deceive us, even us as believers, in our giving of the gospel, oh, don't underestimate you know, His hatred for that. And why do you think the Spirit led us into the reloading of the gospel the last couple of years? Such a powerful way that He opened our eyes. Uh, Why do you think the emphasis has been on the Great Commission as our ultimate mission in this life? Satan wants to stain and twist and distract from the great need of the gospel. That's the simple, pure gospel. Just twist it. Just make it dirty. Just make it, you know, unacceptable to people, even to believers. And he'll try to do that in a variety of subtle ways. So that was the warning from the latest blog. So regarding true motivation, love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's true motivation. What's the best motivation in the Bible? I mean, there aren't many the bests, but love is the great motivation. Love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation is everything. What good is any conversation if we're talking to a dead person? A sobering thought. That's why when the Lord came, he started his public ministry saying, repent and believe the good news. In Mark one fifteen, the first part of his public ministry, repent and believe the good news. A spiritually dead person who doesn't have Christ to represent him before God is going to be separated from God for all eternity. Unless somebody repents and turns to Christ, he remains not good by God's standards. He can only become good by being related to Christ by grace through faith. And that's the truth that Satan is trying to suppress however he can. So we must not give his lies one little bit of credit. The eternal life of other people is at stake. You know, again, it's our job to be on the front lines it's our job to learn the word of God and to bring it out to the lost and dying world and to be honest with people why do you think the apostles got beat up why do you think the prophets got beat up they were honest with the truth they didn't you know sidestep it they didn't try to soften it they were honest in love but no one wants to hear the truth and that's why they got attacked Well. We're blessed to be in this country. But our job is to get out there and to give people the honest truth, to give people the fullness of the gospel, even if it hurts them, because some people are going to thank you, if not in this life, in eternity. So, of course, Jesus knew the problem statement. He knew the dire need of man to be saved from himself from his own misconception about his goodness, and from sin. He knew. He knew what was in man. Part of that was thinking that they're good enough. Go to John 8, 23. Jesus knew man inside and out. And he knew the dire need of man. He, he wasn't um, softening that truth. In fact, that's again why people hated him and attacked him, because he was so blunt and honest. John 8, 23, he was saying to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he... You will die in your sins. Well, if you're not willing to accept that, you're going to try to pick up a rock if you're a Jew back 2,000 years ago. You're going to die in your sins if you don't believe that I'm he, the one from above. Who was he saying this to in this verse? Wasn't it the Pharisees? And what's the thing about the Pharisees? They thought they were good enough to please God on their own. They thought they kept the law perfectly. But if you broke one part of the law, you're guilty of all. But they were so arrogant, they thought they were good enough. And by the way, don't forget, that's that's the big lie of religions today. Think about this. Every religion in the world, other than true Christianity, promotes man being good enough to please God. Think about every religion in the world. Go through them in your mind if you want. Do a little study at home, whatever. It's all about self-improvement, ability of self to appease or please God. But in true Christianity, it's all by grace, not by works. So that's the big lie of religion, that there's a way somehow to be good enough. If you try hard enough and you're sincere, you can do it. 9 out of 10 is pretty good. God, that's an A minus. (laughs) And my exam, do I get a gold star? God's ways are not our ways. His perspective is not man's perspective. And we have to let people know this, the big lie of religion, if they're willing to listen. So that was their big problem, their big deception, the Pharisees, that is. And we have a lot of little Pharisees living in our area that believe the same thing about themselves. Our job is to give them the unadulterated truth so they can be saved. Now, some of us might say, as came up on Sunday, these people deserve hell for rejecting the Lord. You know, how could they reject my Lord and Savior? And it's an understandable reaction and it's a true statement that they deserve hell just like we all did. That's true for all of us. Or have we so quickly forgotten? Have we forgotten that we were in their shoes like just yesterday? Time is a drop in the bucket after all. all. You know, you think of life, you think of a timeline of life, right? And you were saved here in this year and some of your friends are destined to be saved about ten years from now or five years from now on the timeline. And here you are, impatient with them. Because before this point, when you were saved that year, before over here, who were you? Unsaved. And God was patient with you. Now that you're saved, you get impatient with them when you were exactly in that position, whatever year it was. Crazy. How do we forget we were destined for hell at one point? Denying Jesus Christ, uh, born trapped in sin and death. How do we forget that? That's the very thing we're grateful for, being rescued from. How do we forget that? So may it never be that we forget where we came from. It's just a horrible, another curse. It's, It's like familiarity all over again. Turn to Romans 5, verse 6. And we never forget where we came from. <clears throat> Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Notice, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to believe first before he died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And thank God, God loved us while we were his enemies. Do you love others while they're your enemies or his enemies? God loved us while we were his enemies. So we must do the same. It came up recently in our Wednesday night Bible studies that the people we often encounter and deal with are unbelievers and therefore enemies of the cross. True statement. We might not dealing with them. We might not like dealing with them. Or loving them as a brother or even as a fellow countryman, as Paul often did. But yet, weren't every one of us enemies of the cross at one point? like just yesterday. And didn't the Lord love us and reconcile us to himself while we were enemies? We just read that. So we can have the same compassion on others the Lord had on us, especially because we were once in their shoes, destined for spiritual death for all eternity. So on the board regarding enemies of the cross... May we never forget where we came from. In fact, may we use that very thing to motivate us to love our enemies. You wanted someone to love you. Looking back on it, when you were an unbeliever, you're thankful someone loved you enough to give you the gospel. You're thankful the Lord was patient with you instead of just taking you out. May we never forget where we came from, and in fact, may we use that very thing to motivate us to love our enemies. Go to Luke 6 27. Luke six twenty-seven. We can be pretty short-sighted at times. And that's just the flesh kind of getting the best of us, really. I'm trying to take some credit in a very subtle way. Luke six twenty-seven. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And just as a little reminder, love conquers. Love can accomplish anything. Love can change the heart of the worst person you know. So just a little reminder from the Lord himself, love your enemies, do good to them. When's the last time you gave someone money or you helped them physically in some way like that? Who was your enemy? Or who you know doesn't like you? Or you know is an unbeliever? When's the last time you did that? That is what Jesus is telling us to do. Do good to those who hate you. Do good. Don't just pray for them. Do good. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's an attitude of the heart. It's, it's a heart of love that the Lord is trying to transfer to us. Another very important principle came out on Sunday, that we should never become judges when it comes to others. Think about the fact that even Jesus, during his ministry on earth, did not come to judge, but rather to save people. And he's the only one that had the right to judge. And he didn't even enter into that line of thinking while he was on earth. That's not why he came. His focus was on saving people. Go again to John 1244. John 12.44. Here's another, like, you know, blow your mind kind of thing to dwell on. Here's Jesus with the right to judge, the only one the only perfectly good one, thus having the right to judge, and he doesn't. And here we are, the ones that don't have the right to judge, that want to judge. John twelve forty four. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in, him, uh, believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. There's just a little reminder of the perfect oneness and unity of God. Remember, Jesus said to Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What don't you get here? That's, that's my own words. But <laughs> what don't you, that's what he said to Philip. He's like, why don't you, why don't you get this? <laughs> I forget what he said. He said something like that, though. No, really, he's like, why don't you get this? Don't you know by now, Philip? So don't forget this, the, this perfect oneness of God. They're, they're the same person. But anyway, um, in verse 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. When you think about it, it's pretty crazy how patient the Lord is. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I don't judge him. I'm here to save. What do you do when you meet someone that doesn't keep the Lord's sayings? Here's a better question. What do you think when you meet someone that doesn't keep the Lord's sayings? I know what I sometimes do and think, and it includes judging, at least in my heart, and it's horrible. So may this motivate us that even the Lord did not judge, even though he had the right to. And then he caps it off in verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word that I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. There's the power of the word, by the way, which we'll get to again at the end. The word that I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. So our prototype, the only perfect one, said he didn't come to judge but to save. How much more should that be our attitude as former enemies of the cross ourselves, redeemed from sin now. One day in the future, of course, on the day of the Lord, the Lord will judge in the end, but that's something reserved for him alone at the proper time. It's not an option for us. It's silly to even be considered an option for us, being where we come from. So it's also not part of our mission and not part of the Great Commission. Turn to Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. So judging is not even an option for us. It's not even on the table, being where we, we've come from. And it's also not part of our mission. Not part of the great co mission that the Lord has given us. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and judge everybody, because you come in my name and I have all authority. Notice that. He says, All authority has been given to me. Now, what would you do if you had all authority given to you? But he holds off. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you see judgment in there anywhere? Do you see the Lord assigning us to do any judging, even though He's passing on His authority to us through this command? And I'm being sarcastic here, but this is a good reminder of the simplicity of our mission, as was his, which was to seek and save the lost. So we leave any judging to him at the appropriate time. We also saw on Sunday the gospel heart. Christ's heart was on the gospel during his ministry, even though he had the authority to judge. Truly amazing when you consider his perfection. Perfection. Christ's heart was on the gospel during his ministry, even though he had the authority to judge. So we should imitate him and do the same. And not only towards those we love, but also towards our enemies as well. I also really like the quotes that uh, Pastor brought out from Spurgeon. So I want to go through these again and uh, see what you can take for your own soul and your own mission as part of the Great Commission here. Uh, Spurgeon said, This simple gospel has nothing to do with those who will not confess themselves to be sinners. If you must be canonized, if you claim a saintly perfection of your own, the good news has nothing to do with you. I love that. The first time I read it, I was like, wait a minute, that's not right. But anyway, I had to read it a couple times to see what he was getting at. The good news has nothing to do with the person that won't even admit they're a sinner and they don't need the good news. Paul's message is a message for sinners and sinners alone. The whole of this salvation, so broad, so brilliant, so unspeakably precious, and so everlastingly secure, is addressed this day to the outcast, to the offscarring. It is not your house that is in danger. It is not your body alone. It is your soul that's at stake. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Mark 8.36 Are you wise? This is more worthy than your wisdom. Are you rich? This is worthier than all your wealth. Are you famous? This is worthier than all your honor. Are you princely? This is worthier than your ancestry or your goodly heritage. The gospel is the worthiest thing under heaven because it will last when all other things fade away. You can picture like the rich man on his deathbed. The gospel will last when all other things fade away. It will stand by you when you have to stand alone. In the hour of death, it will plead for you when you have to answer the summons of justice at God's bar and it shall be your eternal consolation through never-ending ages. It is worthy of all acceptance. The Lord bless you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Do you hear the gratitude in Spurgeon's sentiments? You hear his heart. And this was the same in Paul's letters, if you think about how Paul writes and converses. There was a great realization of the magnitude of the gospel and its dramatic import for the desperate needs of man. Again, there was a great realization in these men found in the word of God through the apostles, for example, of the magnitude of the gospel and its dramatic import for the desperate needs of man. Desperate backs against the wall situation. And that's what religious people need to understand. And the outpouring of gratitude simply goes back to the gospel, always, as it should be for all of us. It's so simple. It's so simple. When we take our eyes off the gospel, we complicate everything. The whole scripture, the whole of scripture is about the gospel in some way, shape, or form. It tells the story of the gospel. And we just do it to ourselves when we take our eyes off the gospel. Just be grateful for that on the board. This has come up before. Gratitude for the gospel. Every day we wake up should include an awe and wonder for the fact that God has saved us by grace through faith. How can we get used to that? Well, it's the flesh creeping in. But every day we wake up, it's simple. It should include an awe and a wonder, the fact that God even thought about us, forget saved us. By grace through faith. That is the first and foremost thing to be grateful for every day. And that attitude is what leads to our sanctification and growth each day. Think about that. We love to make it complicated or try to earn our way in some way. Try to be part of our own sanctification even. No, it's by faith. By grace through faith. And that includes gratitude. On the board, learn to live a life of gratitude. As this goes, so goes your sanctification. If you live this way, you will grow. You can't not. That's how God does it. God does it with things that you can't take credit for. You can't take credit for being grateful. It's ridiculous. Learn to live a life of gratitude. If we do that, so goes our sanctification. He grows us. All Through his power and to his glory. Turn again to First Thessalonians five sixteen. First Thessalonians five sixteen. Again, learn to live a life of gratitude. Learn. It means it's not automatic. It means you have to ponder it, think about it, apply it. You have to make the decision each day to wake up and thank God for salvation. And to step back for a minute to where you came from as an enemy of the cross, and that he plucked you out of the fire. Learn to live a life of gratitude. as this goes, so goes your sanctification. First Thessalonians 5:16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is how to be spiritual. Isn't that simple? Stop trying to, you know, say all the right words and, you know, be smart and, you know what I mean. That's the spiritual life right there. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sanctifies you entirely. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Thank God. Thank God it's that simple. Thank God that he calls us to do what is written in verses 16 to 18. Just out of free will, really. Right? There's no credit you can take for being thankful or rejoicing. And yet he uses that very thing to sanctify us. And he'll bring it to pass. So gradually getting back to our series on the apostles... We saw that, you know, power is another thing that the apostles lacked. And where do we get God's power? Arguably, it starts with gratitude for the gospel. Because that is an expression of faith itself, isn't it? If you decide in your heart to be grateful to God, is that not an expression of faith? So right there, we're accessing God's power. That's why he sanctifies us when we're grateful and thankful. Because by faith we're entering into his realm, the sphere of love. And he says, okay, now I can speed this up. Now I can churn in you, churn in your soul. I'm going to work this thing out in you that you can't do. Just stay grateful. Where do we get God's power? We've been learning it's through faith. Faith is power. And again, you might ask yourself, well, how do I know for sure that I have faith in the Word? Right? I've asked myself, especially through this reloading of the Gospel, right? Examine yourself, make sure you're in the faith and all this. But how do you know that you do have faith in the Word? You follow it. You obey it. Not perfectly. What's your pattern? What's your lifestyle? That's how you know if you have faith in the Word or not. Obedience. And obedience is one of the major evidences or proofs of faith. So rest on that if you're being obedient. As we continue to read our Bibles in context, we see that if you really believe something, you follow it or obey it. That is throughout the whole Bible, old and new. Every author. If you really believe something, you actually follow it and obey it. Just like the Bible says, if you really repent, you actually do something. You actually go forward in your life to fix what you, you know, whatever. I don't mean works, you know what I mean. If you repent, there's a result in your life. It's throughout the whole, whole of Scripture. If you believe, you follow. So that's a wonderful evidence that we can rest in. That you know what? I, I did trust in Christ. I did make him my you know Lord and Savior. I did submit or surrender. Because this thing is happening in my life. This obedience. And by faith and the resultant obedience we're granted power from God. Power from God. By grace through faith. Turn again to Philippians 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. As we begin to close. So, again, by faith and the resultant obedience, we're granted power from God. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And we saw on Sunday this phrase, holding fast the word of life. And when you see the word life there, think of eternal life, not just life. It refers to the gospel, which when believed produces spiritual and eternal life. Allah la Ephesians 2.5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now that is power. By grace through faith, God and His Word make a dead man alive forever. That's what He's done for each believer. The word itself has power and sanctifies us because after all, the word is God in John 1.1. 1, 1. So it's working. It's, it's working out. The word is working out so much garbage in us that we can't see. And it's good that we probably don't see it, but he's working out so many things in us. And then a few years later, you know, you might see the growth in yourself or how you've changed in a certain area or somebody tells you what they've seen in your life that it's no longer that way. And so you may not, again, see it even, but God's doing some marvelous things in us if we're just following him by faith, by grace through faith. And that's the power of God. That's the power that we receive by faith. So the power of the word started with creation itself and extends to mankind as our source of sanctification. Again, look at Philippians 2.13 if you're still there. For it is God who is at work in you. It is God who is at work in you. Faith allows us to receive his power to sanctify us. And in the end, the word will have its way with his believers. Thank God. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 2, verse 14. 1 John 2, 14. So just a little bit more about the power of the word in our lives. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Notice what coincides with the word of God abiding in you. It's that you're strong and that you've overcome. The word of God gives us power by faith. Look at 1 John 5, verse 1. 1 John 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? our faith. Faith is power. Faith overcomes. And in verse five, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. So again, faith is power and power resides in the word itself. We ended on Thursday uh, with the concept of movement and sanctification on the board. Anytime there's godly movement in our lives under the power of the Word and the Spirit, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. And consider this. God's always on the move in the lives of His believers, in the lives of His children. God is always on the move in the lives of His children, even when you could be messing up big time. And if you feel it or not, it's not the issue. Uh, if you're going through pain or struggles right now, that doesn't mean God isn't on the move in your life. In fact, it's the opposite. Scripture tells us He's on the move even more in your life. What is the refiner's fire all about? The fire hurts, but it's burning off impurities and making you more like Christ and stronger when you come out of the fire. God's always on the move in our lives, especially when things don't look good. But that takes faith, doesn't it? And if you have that faith, if you decide to trust Him, you're going to be given power. And you're going to get through things you never thought you could get through. So again, on the board, anytime there's godly movement in our lives under the power of the Word and the Spirit, we may rightly say, that it's a part of our sanctification. All right, I'm going to skip a couple passages here because I want to close with one last passage. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4, verse 11. Philippians 4, 11. So our power comes from living by faith in the Word. And we can literally do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Christ being the Word, by the way. The result of faith and obedience in the Word is power in our lives and power to even live in the devil's world successfully, victoriously. Philippians 4.11. Now, before we read this too, When you hear the word power, don't just think of overt manifestations. Moving a mountain, right? Uh, Getting rid of a demon. When you think of power, it includes the ability to have patience and contentment in the most difficult circumstances. That's God's power at work in you. So look at Philippians 4, 11 through 13 as we close. Right there is faith in the Word, folks. They're really one and the same because Christ is the Word. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can go through the worst circumstances we could imagine, things we never thought we could bear or ever go through and find contentment and peace within that situation. Like Job sitting on the ash heap scraping his boils and praising the Redeemer at the same time. Now, you might not think you can handle it. That really doesn't matter. God gives you the power when the time comes, and God prepares us for that time. And all it requires on our end is faith. Faith is power. If you decide to trust God in humility, in whatever situation you're in, you'll find yourself victorious on the other end. Because God's the one working these things out in you, not you. So it's a supernatural, spiritual walk. Thank God that he does all this stuff in us. And some of the greatest parts or, or representations and evidence of his power is contentment in all circumstances. Again, this is like God's perspective, right? Not man's perspective. And the angels are, are, are gawking in, in awe, that you can have some peace in the most unfair si- situation and other people are always observing you. And you get to say, this is God's power working in me. I know it ain't me. Because if God doesn't bring us to our knees like that, we're going to take some credit, aren't we? But praise God. It's all about him and he's, he's at work all the time in us and our only role is faith so let's bow our heads and we'll continue on Thursday dear Heavenly Father we thank you so much that your plan is by grace through faith it's not by works or human effort or human goodness and thank you so much that we don't have to rely on those things help us to drop any semblance of relying on ourselves help us to rely on you holy Father by faith in your word. Father, we ask that you help us bring these truths and the true gospel out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.